Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Hey, Cliff, what's going on, man? Not much over here, man, but what's up with you? Because I know we have a call scheduled, um, but you had something else get in the way today. Is that right? Like we, we almost didn't get a chance to do this call? Oh, well, I was going to go help deliver a sailboat in a storm down really? from Crescent City to Eureka, but ended up they postponed it, so I didn't get to do it. So it, w- it was just a free ride on a sailboat or something, or was there uh, some sort of monetary need? I mean, what was going on? Oh, I got to, we were going to eat at the best restaurant and get whatever we wanted as much as we wanted. And that was your payment for risking yeah. your life? Yeah. Well, what are the seas like right now? I mean, it's nasty out there, man. You don't want to be on the ocean right now. Oh, it's a super seaworthy boat, and the seas are 13 foot, and the wind's about 25, 30. Yeah. It sounds like a nightmare, man. That'd be fun. <laughs> I suppose. I'd be sick the entire time. Oh, I'd throw up at first, but then I'd get used to it. <laughs> get used to throwing up? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just from all my years of being seasick. I never got seasick ever fishing, commercial fishing. Till my tenth year, I went out. It was fifteen feet at nine seconds with forty-five knot winds. I went out on this old dragger, and just I was in the down the forecastle sleeping on the way out to the grounds. We were going longlining for hardheads, and we were running about sixty, seventy miles out. So we, you know, it was, and it was a really rough, big, gnarly storm. So we were the only boat that left the whole Eureka. Um, fleet that couple days we went out there and i got i was down below and the diesel exhaust broke and the whole bottom of the boat filled with diesel fumes and i got gnarly diesel poisoning and almost killed me and i got every day after that every day on the boat i'd be sick the first day Oh man, that's the, you know, I mean, you have dealt with a lot higher seas than I ever have. You know, I was just like a sporty fisherman down in Southern California, but being on the back of the boat, just with the exhaust, that diesel exhaust coming up in my face was enough to turn me green on a lot of occasions. So I can't imagine what the bottom of the boat filling with diesel fuel would do to you. Oh, I was, there was a picture of me that I haven't seen it in years with this guy. I never had a copy of it, but it was I was literally green, green, green. They took up because they, were, they said they'd never seen anyone that green before. <laughs> and then I'd be like, for a couple of years after that, I'd be at a get like a but like a bus in front of me to a stop sign, like step on the gas and throw a bunch of diesel out. I would just it hit me and I'd instantly vomit just out yeah. my window or whatever. Just walking along the street, I breathe big thing of exhaust. I'd just instantly throw up. But anyways you make for a good walking companion (laughs) yeah nice so then but i discovered um i was able to cure my seasickness with uh two orange flavored chewable drowning pills 
a quart of carob um, soy milk because it's high in acidophilus, um, a banana, and then uh, a yogurt. And like a, in a, in a yeah. shake or something? Like mix no, it up? I just, eat them, I just eat them all in a row and then a whole thing of rich crackers, like a whole tube or a couple tubes of rich crackers, and that would keep you from throwing up. <laughs> well, well, your stomach would be chock full. For, and how in the world did you find out that combination? Like the banana and the Ritz crackers and the carob. Like, that could have been trial and error. That would have taken years to find that. It took me a couple of years. <laughs> you didn't just try ginger? Uh, no. <laughs> I, didn't hear, I, thought that was, I thought that was hippie crap. And then uh, I found out, no, it does work. <laughs> yeah, some of, some of that hippie crap does work. Oh yeah, well that's what see, well that's what got rid of the um, diesel poisoning was I had all these sweats like sweated out of me. Wow, like a sweat lodge sort of thing. Yeah, like fast and then sweat and just steam it out of you. So you'd uh, have to fast for a while, like burn some fat so you'd release the shit out. You'd burn the fat. You'd you'd go in the sweat lodge and uh just sweat 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 and then you would wouldn't eat for a while and your body would start burning the fat and when you burn the fat they'd release the toxins and it would flush the toxins out sounds kind of crappy yeah it, <laughs> it was not pleasant oh, i tried hey. yeah oh, go, ahead. go ahead i tried fasting once but it seemed to take forever <laughs> <laughs> still got a cliff but not sure i ever had it bobs yeah, the reason I was calling you tonight was because I got a guy, Charles Lamaca. He was the former statewide director of search and rescue operations for the state of Alaska. He worked at the um, State Trooper Academy up there in Alaska, training all the cadets and new hires like that transferred from other departments in the lower 48. He put them through a survival training class, how to survive in the wilderness of Alaska. Um, he's an expert tracker. And he's just uh, been into it for several, you know, over a decade now. And he's got the bona fides, and he's had some interesting experiences. And he's actually writing a book on tracking Bigfoot right now, how to track a Bigfoot, which I think is going to be a big hit when it comes out. Hey, Cliff, we got Charles here on the line. Charles Lamaca. I was just telling you about the uh, former statewide coordinator for Alaska Search and Rescue with the state troopers up there. Nice, so, man. Nice, nice to meet you, Charles. Uh, those are some heavy credentials. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you guys. Pleasure's all ours. Yeah, right on. So, Charles, um, why don't you take us back to your first uh, your first exposure to Bigfoot? Well, my my first ever exposure uh, was when I was eight years old. We lived in Southern Oregon at the time, uh, near Grants Pass. Um, it happened to be about the same time that the Patterson-Gimlin film came out, uh, or maybe just a month or so after that, if I remember right. It was right around that same time period. And um, we lived uh, out in the woods. Uh, our house was uh, pretty isolated. And uh, one morning we woke up, it had snowed during the night. I think this was about November and uh, there were these huge footprints all around the outside of our house. Uh, and uh, I remember, I mean, they were just immense. And I remember my mom actually stepping inside uh, one of the footprints with her feet, you know, uh, heel to toe together. And uh, her feet 
uh, two of her feet made up one of these prints. These prints were like 17 or 18 inches uh, long. And uh, I, like I say, I was eight years old at the time. This was fascinating stuff. This was amazing stuff. And um, if I remember right, my parents had called the local county sheriff's office. I don't remember if they actually sent a deputy out or if they just talked to him on the phone. But basically, the response from the county sheriff's office was, don't worry about it. It's probably just bear tracks. It's no big deal. Right. Yeah. Are your parents still alive or are they passed on now? Or They have passed on. Um, that fall, we had had a, a, a whole series of uh, mysterious events uh, happening around our house. We had a, a small tax shed where my dad kept grain for the horses and uh, uh, something kept breaking into the shed and and getting into the grain for the horses. And, and uh, he thought that it was a bear. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we subsequently have all these giant footprints around the house one morning. And uh, uh, later, uh, my dad uh, actually claims that he actually saw the Sasquatch at one point uh, because he heard uh, something going into the tax shed uh, at night and he went out to go investigate and and uh, uh, he later said, yeah, I, I saw this thing. It was it was walking on two legs. Um, and so, like I say, I was eight years old. Uh, I wish something like that would have happened when I was older. I would have been uh, far more uh, investigative in it. But at the time I just thought it was kind of a really cool, interesting thing, but I didn't know what to do with it. Did you ever figure out why the Bigfoot was going into the shed? Um, my dad's theory was that it was eating, uh, some of the horse grain, some of the, uh, uh, grain that we had stored there for the horses. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's the case, but, uh, that was his theory. By any chance, uh, was that grain sweet feed, or was it, do you have any idea if you used sweet feed around the property? We we did use sweet feed um, for much of the, my life. You know, when I was a kid and we had horses. Whether it was actually sweet feed at that particular time, I can't tell you. But I do know that we often use that. So there, there's a very good chance that that's exactly what it was. That's interesting. Yeah, because our uh, producer actually is a squatcher, Matt Pruitt, and he came up with that at, back in the South uh, Midwest area. That sweet feed should be the number one thing that was bringing squatches into people's barns. Yeah, you know, it's got molasses in it, and so I imagine it it's probably pretty tasty. I like it. I've had a few handfuls myself. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like sweet granola. <laughs> So was your dad, was he, was he pretty shook up by what he saw that time? Like, did he talk about it ever? Um, he didn't talk much about it uh, then, at least not to us kids. I think he was trying to keep us from getting scared over that. In fact, I never even knew that he saw the Sasquatch until many years later um, when I was growing up that, you know, he finally said, yeah, I saw it one night. Uh, but when we were actually kids, I think he was trying to protect us from, you know, getting scared. Um, the place that we lived was, you know, way out in the woods, and uh, we didn't have any neighbors to speak of. Uh, and, uh, you know, we played outdoors like 
you know, all kids did back then. And I do remember that there were certain places in the woods near our house that we just didn't like to go. You always had a feeling that there just was something unusual, something a little scary, something a little bit uh, hair raising on the back of your neck kind of place. And, and I was talking to my sister just a few months ago. Uh, she's younger than me. I'm the oldest one in the family. She, and, but I was talking to her uh, just a few months ago, and she brought up the fact, do you remember that there were certain parts of the woods that we just didn't like to go into? And, and I distinctly remember that. I mean, it just there were just sometimes when you just feel like, I don't feel good here. I think I need to go back home. Charles, about what year would this happen when you were eight years old? About your this would have been around 1968, 1969, something right around there. Okay, so just after the PG film is what you're saying. Okay, very good. I just want to get a little bit closer. It may have been uh, shortly after because I I remember when the PG film came out. I remember you know living in Southern Oregon. You know we weren't that far from Northern California. You were it was. It was filmed, and I remember, you know, the big hoopla that came about because of that film. Um, and so this was, you know, really contemporaneous with that time frame. Did your father ever make a comparison of what he saw to the PG film? Did he ever describe what he saw? Not to me. Um, later in life, uh, he uh, uh, would, you know, mention it once in a great while, but. Um, he never really, you know, I never heard him say anything. Yeah, that's what I saw. Um, his, his description to me later in life was more along the lines of, you know, I went out to the barn. Uh, I saw something walking away. It was big. It was walking on two legs. I decided to go back into the house. Mm. What about your mom? Did she ever talk about that beyond the footprints? Not beyond the footprints. No. Um, she, uh, uh, she was convinced that it was a Sasquatch and she, and she talked about it um, as if, you know, she, she was convinced that uh, a Sasquatch had been visiting our, our, uh, our place, but um, did she ever see one? No, not that I know of. And, and uh, I don't know that uh, uh, she had any, evidence to back up what she was convinced was happening. Uh, but for her, um, the idea that, you know, a Bigfoot was coming in and raiding our, our uh, grain from the horses, uh, she just took that as a given. So you've been a horseman your whole life, then an outdoorsman and horseman and hunter. Oh, yeah. I, I started riding horses by myself when I was about four years old. Um, my dad would saddle up my pony and, and uh, just turn me loose. And uh, I'd ride all over the place with my pony. <laughs> and so it's it's been um, something that's been very near and dear to my heart all my life. Oh, that's fun. That's a great way to grow up. So, okay. So then was that it for your childhood for uh, Bigfoot experiences? Yeah, that was that was it. You know, um, nothing else happened. I, I that finding those tracks, seeing those tracks, you know, launched me into trying to read every Bigfoot book I could get my hands on. Um, you know, the school library, especially later, uh, a few years later, when a few more books came out, I checked out every Bigfoot book in the school library that I could get my hands on. And and uh, it was really fascinating to me. 
But as time went on and I eventually, uh, you know, grew up and moved up to Alaska and became an Alaska state trooper, I kind of became a skeptic because it was like, you know, uh, if, if there really was something to this mystery, why don't we have one now? Why don't we have a, uh, you know, a, a body? Why don't we have more evidence? And so, you know, I kind of, uh, I hate to say it, but I kind of grew out of Sasquatch uh, when I got into my 20s. And so um, I didn't give it much thought uh, as a young adult. I'm very disappointed in you, Charles, but you came around, so <laughs> you're forgiven. <laughs> Thank you. I know it's it was a momentary lapse in my uh, uh, psyche. Judgment in your judgment. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, when did you when did you go to Alaska? So I, I went to Alaska as uh, about when I was about nineteen. Um, first, I had joined the California Conservation Corps um, when I just got out of high school, and I was stationed near Mount Lassen in a remote camp. Um, and while I was working there, I found out about a similar work camp up in Alaska near Sitka. Um, and so I, I moved to Alaska in 1979 um, and took a job. And this was a remote place. I mean, we were, there were 50 of us uh, working for the Young Adult Conservation Corps at a place called False Island. And um, you could only get to this place by float plane or boat. Um, and we we built trails, we built log cabins, we did whatever the Forest Service needed us to do. But we were stationed out on an island by ourselves uh, in a camp that had very limited electricity. Only a, a few of the rooms and in, in, in the whole place had electricity. You know, we heated up uh, uh, our hot water on a wood stove to take showers with. And so as a 19-year-old, I'm now in... Uh, uh, Southeast Alaska, and I'm seeing bears and whales and bald eagle eagles, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It really, you do get that thing up there. There's, it's so magical in Alaska. It's, until you go there, you can't really appreciate it. No, you can't. And and it it just was, you know, for for a kid like me that you know I was all about the outdoors. I was all about, you know, wilderness and stuff. And now I'm living in the wilderness, and you know they're paying me to fly out to places in a float plane and go build log cabins or go build trails, uh, live in tents all summer long. Uh, on some of these trails where, you know, Alaska brown bears are walking through our camp. And so it, it was an awesome experience. So you were getting uh, some good knowledge back then on the woods. You must have had some older, more experienced guys kind of tutoring you out there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, the, the other, uh, uh, folks that were out there, if they knew something about the woods that I didn't know, I was, I was all over that. Right. And so did you ever have anything odd happen that you look back and think that was a Sasquatch? Not there at Fault Island, but later when I became a trooper, um, for when I was stationed in Juneau, um, I ran a Civil Air Patrol cadet squadron. And um, my squadron specialized in search and rescue. That was my, kind of my niche in the Alaska State Troopers. And... Um, I would take those kids out on camping trips and we'd, we'd go out on training missions out in the woods and stuff. And um, nothing really happened until probably about 
94 or 95, I was on a camping trip with some of my Civil Air Patrol cadets, and we were camped uh, on an island uh, near Juneau. And in the middle of the night, I had set up my camp a little bit away from where the kids were because I know what the kids are going to do. They're going to stay up late, sit around the campfire, you know, uh, talking and chatting. And and, uh, I'm camped out there with a bunch of teenagers. And in the middle of the night, probably sometime after midnight, I hear thwack, thwack, thwack. And it sounded just like somebody beating an axe against a tree. And I'm thinking, those darn kids, they're trying to chop down a tree. And so I'd already given them, you know, explicit instructions, no chopping down trees. We brought an ax for splitting firewood, but, you know, no chopping down trees. So I'm laying in there in my tent, in my sleeping bag, and I'm hoping that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're not chopping down a tree. And a few minutes later, maybe 10 minutes later, I hear it again. Thwack, thwack. Thwack. And I'm like, oh, dang it. So I get out of my tent. You know, now I'm kind of ticked off. I get out of my tent. I didn't even, you know, grab a flashlight. I just walked through probably about, I, I guess I was about 30 yards away from where the kids were camped. I walked through the, the dark woods. I can see their campfire. I walk right up there. And, you know, about half a dozen of them are sitting around the fire. And uh, I said, I told you guys no chopping down trees. And they're like, uh, sir, we've been right here the whole time. We haven't been chopping down any trees. And I said, I heard you. I heard you. I heard you chopping down trees. And they said, no, sir, we haven't. And so now I'm starting to doubt myself. And I'm like, oh, maybe I dreamt it or something. And so I kind of said, well, make sure you don't chop down any trees. And I turned around and went back to my tent. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the next the next morning I woke up and I thought, oh man, I feel bad because those kids really seemed sincere when they said that they didn't chop down any trees. So I actually apologized to the kids. It wasn't until years later that I learned about wood knocks. And I thought that's what was going on on that camping trip. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Yeah, and the kids hadn't heard it because they were talking around the campfire. And uh, so I don't know if the wood knocks were, you know, maybe one of the kids had gotten up to wander away to go, you know, to the bathroom in the woods or something. I don't know. But, uh, so I, I suspect that was the first time I ever heard any wood knocks. Mm, And this was up in Alaska at the time, right? Right. It was, uh, on an Island near Juneau. Now you, you said you were search and rescue for a number of years, right? Right. Alaska, I became an Alaska state trooper in 1981. And Alaska doesn't have counties. You know, down here in the lower 48, when there's a search and rescue, typically the county sheriff's office is responsible for all search and rescue cases. But because Alaska doesn't have counties, it's the Alaska state troopers that are responsible for them. I um, got involved in search and rescue at my first posting, which was in Fairbanks, and found that I had a knack for it. And because of my outdoor experience, you know, really ended up being, you know, uh, pretty good at it. And so uh, Search and Rescue and I just kind of fell into each other's lap, basically, um, which, you know, I've been on hundreds of Search and Rescue cases in Alaska. And eventually, I ended up becoming the statewide Search and Rescue Coordinator uh, responsible for all Search and Rescues in the state. 
Oh, wow. Um, and all your experience with search and rescue, have you run across evidence while out in the field there or stories from other search and rescue guys or anything? I never ran across anything like that. Uh, but to be honest, I wasn't looking for it either. And, you know, I, I, I've since then learned to subscribe to the belief that, you know, uh, seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. And uh, I, I wish now that I knew then what I know now because, you know, they paid me to fly around in a helicopter. They paid me to fly around uh, with floors uh, in helicopters looking for stuff. You know, I, I, I tracked people through the woods. I did all this kind of stuff, but I wasn't looking for Squatch side. It frustrates me because I, I'm confident that if I could go back in time, who knows what I could have learned about. Yeah, that's one of the things I've picked up from hunters, and people, I think I've read this some, at some point, where hunters say, I've been in my woods all my life hunting and fishing, and I've never seen anything. And then this, I, I think I was reading an account by a hunter, and then he changed his tune after he saw one to, I've been in the woods all my life hunting and fishing, and I never saw anything until I knew what to look for. Exactly. And, I, and I've encountered that that so many times where I've talked to people, you know, good friends uh, or uh, other people folks that have said, oh, no, they can't exist because I've been in the woods my whole life. And if they existed, I would have seen one. Well, my counter to that is you just don't know what to look for yet. Yeah. I, I think uh, the, the two main reasons these things haven't been discovered for lack of a better term is number one is that people underestimate them. And number two, people overestimate humans. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the three things I've learned uh, over the last 10 years or so of doing squatching um, are number one, there's more Sasquatches out there than most people would have thought. Number two, they're more widespread than most people thought. And number three, they are super smart. Oh, for sure. So uh, what tipped the scales for you and got you into Bigfooting more, more regularly, more enthusiastically perhaps? So I, I retired in 2003, and I left Alaska to move to Northeast Washington because I had family in this area. And after living up in Alaska for 25 years, there was a lot of pressure to move closer to the family. So I moved down here to Northeast Washington. I, I live north of Colville. I'm only about 10 or 12 miles uh, away from the Canadian border, and I live on the edge of a national forest. So I have my horses and uh, I love going on horsepacking trips and I typically go by myself. Um, so it'll just be me and, and my riding horse and, and my pack horse. And I'm fortunate that I can, since I live on the edge of a national forest, I can load up my horse and literally just ride away from my front yard. I don't have to trailer them anywhere. I don't have to drive a long ways. I can get on my horse and just ride. And so about 2006 or 2007, I was on a horse packing trip and rode my horses up into the national, the Colville National Forest here. And as the crow flies, I really was only about six or seven miles um, in a straight line from my house. But because of the route that you have to take while you're riding the horses, it, it's longer than that. But I'm camped along this creek for about three days and the entire weekend I'm camped there, I kept hearing people talking in the woods. And I, 
I'm by myself, you know, and I'm not at a campground. I'm I'm wilderness camping. I'm I'm not someplace where people can drive up and and pitch their tent or anything. You have to make an effort to get out to here. And uh, I kept hearing voices, and almost like one was on one side of my camp and one was on the other side of my camp. And I only heard it in the evenings or at night, and it was like two people talking back and forth to each other, but in a language I couldn't understand, and so quietly that I couldn't make out individual words. But it was like, I was like, what is this? And it, interestingly enough, it didn't freak out my horses. Um, and it didn't particularly scare me or anything, but it was a, such a mystery. I was like, what is going on here? And this went on the entire weekend, uh, every evening. Um, I think I spent three nights out there every evening. I would hear this every night. And at one point during the weekend, somebody was standing up on the ridge line above my camp and screaming their head off. And I was like, what is going on? It was like it was it, it wasn't a, a high pitched, you know, blood curdling scream. It was more of a kind of scream, mm. not quite like an Ohio howl, but uh, but close, you know, like somebody was trying to get somebody's attention from a long distance away. This whole weekend, I'm trying to figure out what is this and not having any thing to link it to, I finally convinced myself that the atmospheric conditions must be just right. And I'm hearing voices from a long ways away. You know, <laughs> the sounds bouncing off of something. I don't know what that something could have been. And I doubt that there was any people camping within, you know, easily within 10 or 20 miles of where I'm at. But I not knowing any different, I finally convinced myself, well, that must be the answer. I'm just hearing something from far away because the atmospheric conditions are just right. That was that. It was kind of a mystery. It was kind of interesting. I I didn't quite know what to think of it. Um, I went back to that place, you know, rode my horses back there a number of times, camped out there, and I still go out there a lot. Um, but it was about, oh, I don't know, maybe a year later or so, you know, I would get on the internet and start, you know, uh, searching stuff because I, I wanted to find out what these noises were. And I discovered the BFRO website and they have some recordings on the BFRO website. And one of those recordings is Samurai Chatter. And I listened to that Samurai Chatter and I was like, that is what I heard. For like three nights in a row, I heard Samurai Chatter. And so that's what got me into it. Looking back at this experience, would you say it's a pretty much dead match for the samurai chatter, or was it different in some way? And if so, how? I mean, it was very close, um, but it was different in that, you know, the samurai chatter that you hear on the BFRO website uh, really does sound like, uh, you know, like a sumo wrestler muttering to himself or something. Mine was more like a conversation between two individuals. Um, and, and typically one would be on one side of my camp and one would be on the other side of my camp. Um, I couldn't tell if 
there was a size difference between the individuals. I mean, it's not like there was, you know, one that sounded male and one that sounded female or one sounded large and one sounded, you know, smaller. I couldn't, I couldn't tell that. It was as if somebody was talking in a different language and I couldn't understand the, the words. I spoke to a witness at Antillamook out here on the Oregon coast, and she also heard them bouncing words back and forth to each other as you know she had her encounter with them. And um, one of the things she brought up is that uh, it sounded much like uh, the language itself sounded like a, she equated it to like a, a perhaps part partly an Asian language, um, like she said Vietnamese, but I think her father-in-law was Vietnamese or something like that. Um, and also a, a South Southwestern or Southeastern um, Alaskan native because on her other side mm-hmm. of the family, I think she had some Haida relatives. Uh, but she mm-hmm. she made a very interesting observation is that buried in those words or whatever they were, there were clicking noises, almost like Bushmen, like pops. Mm-hmm. That kind of, uh-huh. did, you, did you hear anything mm-hmm. like that? I, I may have heard a little bit of that. I don't remember a lot of it. You got to remember, I'm I'm sitting there trying to figure out what is going on. And at, at some point, you know, I just convinced myself that I'm hearing something that's coming from far, far away. That's the only explanation I could come up with. <laughs> and so some of that that tongue clacking noise, I have heard that, but I, I can't tell you now, you know, this is, you know, like 12 years later. I, I can't tell you now how much of it was uh, involved in what I heard on that particular trip. It, it seemed to me that you had this psychological phenomenon of, of- making up this story so everything made sense you know like oh the atmospheric conditions must be just right and i'm hearing right. these people yeah. from 10 5 or 10 miles away um that's a very common thing with witnesses who don't know what's going on um particularly yeah, when they I've, don't i've learned that real. right i've learned that since then that you know the brain tries to reconcile you know, you've got something weird going on, and so your brain tries to reconcile it with something that you already know. And that, I guess that's what my brain was doing on that trip. Yeah, I uh, had these witnesses up here on the Sandy River, not far from where I live, actually, and um, they were getting rocks thrown at them um, in a spot that was well-known for Bigfoot encounters. And, but they couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. They saw these rocks dropping, actually, in some cases, mm-hmm. about the size of their head. And they all came to the conclusion that a small plane must be flying over and dropping rocks out of it into the river. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> all the time, yeah. All right, so, so I guess uh, this experience is what really hooked you on Bigfooting. I wanted to go back to your search and rescue days. In Alaska, did you guys oversee the search and rescue in national parks also? Um, We uh, would assist them in national parks. Alaska is unique in that the Alaska State Troopers have authority everywhere in Alaska, including on all military bases, on all national parks, uh, everywhere, with the exception of Denali National Park. And that's because it was the only national park that was in existence at the time that Alaska became a state. But everything else we, we had authority on. So if there was a search and rescue in those places, we went. Um, and uh, uh, I've heard of the missing 411 uh, uh, books and stories. I've never read any of them. I did have one search and rescue case that uh, comes to my mind when I think about uh, those kind of cases. 
And it was probably uh, 1994, 95, uh, near Juneau at a, at a remote uh, fish cannery called Excursion Inlet. And it's, Excursion Inlet is one of these places where uh, you can only get there by boat or float plane. The only people that live there are the people that uh, work at this remote cannery. It's not a town, so to speak. It's not uh, anything but a, a place where a bunch of cannery workers live and work for uh, pretty much most of the year. Um, and in, in the one particular case I'm thinking of, there was an elderly gentleman. If I remember right, he was in his 70s. He worked there. Uh, apparently, he was well-liked, and, and he was a good employee. And every evening after his shift, he liked to go for a walk on the dirt roads that uh, uh, were in that area. Um, one night, he didn't come back. And so the cannery workers organized their own search, looked for him. When they couldn't find him, they called the state troopers. I flew out there. Uh, we started a, a search. We eventually brought in several uh, search dogs and dog handlers. We used uh, uh, aircraft. We used a helicopter. We used ground searchers. We never found a single clue about this guy, which is really unusual in the search and rescue world. There's always clues out there. Uh, people, you know, people are, are messy creatures, and they always leave clues somewhere. And we never found a single clue. To this day, I don't know what happened to that guy. Um, you know, I, I kind of joked that uh, maybe a UFO came and picked him up or something and uh, all that. You know, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And it wasn't until, a, I don't know if it was a year or two years later, I was talking to a native gentleman, a Clinket uh, gentleman, about Excursion Inlet. And just kind of matter-of-factly, he said, well, you know, Trooper, the uh, the Kushtakas in Excursion Inlet are especially aggressive. I'm like, oh, okay. And I just kind of filed it away in the back of my head because at that time, I, I didn't know much about Sasquatches or anything like that. Since then, I've really wondered. I've really wondered, you know, if there was a Sasquatch that was maybe injured or older or having trouble finding food or something, and you happen to see uh, an elderly gentleman that's walking the same trail every single night, I don't know. I, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that Sasquatches are inherently dangerous because I go camping all the time by myself and I know there have been Sasquatches around and they've had plenty of opportunity to, you know, do harm to me and never have. But in the back of my mind is this question. And I, I don't know if I'll ever know the answer. How big was that island? It's it's huge. I mean, it's a huge island. I I don't remember how many square miles it is, um, but um, you know, it's a large uh, island. Um, but the only people that live there are the people that work at this cannery. Are you aware of other missing persons in that area? Not particularly in that area, um, but Alaska has a lot of people that never get found. I mean, we're talking about a state that has. Uh, on average, about 600 search and rescue cases a year. When I was still a trooper, before I retired in 2003, 
um, if I remember right, there's still something like 125 airplanes that are missing in Alaska that nobody has a clue where they're at. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a huge, it's a huge area. I don't know how many people are missing. I know that during my career, I probably had five or six cases where we just never found the person. Yeah, I'd be curious why the the, the gentleman suggested there are so many uh, um, aggressive kushtaka in the area. Um, if, yeah, if more people have gone missing that he was aware of or what, so. Yeah, I I wish I knew. I wish uh, again. I wish I knew back then the things I know now because I would have been all over that. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, you know, he's he's saying, oh, you know, the Kushika are particularly aggressive there. And, and while I had great respect for the native people there, you know, not growing up uh, with Kushika stories. Um, and things like that. I, I didn't give it a whole lot of weight. Um, I know that the, the Clinkett in Southeast Alaska, Kushtika is very much on their radar. Um, I ran a, when I was stationed in a remote village in uh, Yakutat, um, I ran the, the local Boy Scout troop there, uh, in addition to doing all the trooper work and stuff. And uh, my Boy Scouts talked about Kushtika all the time. They'd joke with each other about, uh, uh, you know, hey, you know, don't get left behind out here because Kushtika will get it. And, and to this day, there are moms living in those traditional villages that will tell their kids, if, if, if you don't start behaving, I'll leave you outside for the Kushtika. Now, did you ever hear much talk of uh, Gagit? I never heard Gagit. Um, I only heard uh, Kushtika. But again, you know, I wasn't asking those kind of questions, and uh, man, I, I I really wish I had. Yeah, yeah, because you're around those natives all the time. I mean, they the, the ones up there, they they've got a wealth of knowledge about them. They they really know oh, them. Oh, absolutely. You know, I was stationed in Yakutat, which is a Clinkett village, for two and a half years. Um, you know, I ran the Boy Scout troop. I had a good relationship with most of the people in the village. Uh, the, the cool thing was, as a state trooper, my boss came to visit me out in Yakutat twice in two and a half years. So, Charles, after you got back to Washington and you hooked up to BFRO, you started squatching a lot more because you were retired, right? Correct. Yeah. I was fully retired at that time. I didn't have a job I had to answer to. And so I got into squatching all the time. I was going on uh, horseback up into the Colville National Forest. Uh, when I didn't take my horses, I was taking my Jeep uh, or I was uh, uh, on foot. Um, a few times, you know, going squatching by canoe along uh, Lake Roosevelt here. And so you know, every chance I got, I was out in the woods. I own a saddle shop now, um, and I, I do custom leather work and stuff at my shop. And about two years ago, I put up a small little yellow Sasquatch crossing sign on the wall. And it's amazing how many customers will see that sign, and they'll say something like, uh, do you believe in that? And I'll say, yeah, sure I do. And it's amazing how many floodgates that has opened. People will, will start telling me, yeah, I, I saw one. It was just a few miles from here. Or I saw one up you know, at Trout Lake. Or I saw one up on Radar Dome. And some of these people are people that I've known for a number of years and had no clue that they'd had Sasquatch sighting. But once they saw that little sign and realized that I wasn't going to ridicule them, out come the stories. 
Yeah, the luckiest investigators are those that live in an active area because, I mean, BFRO is a great group and you get lots of contacts, but the sheer volume of reports for your specific area can't come from a, a database that, that casts such a wide net as the BFRO or anybody else for that matter. You got to live in the spot um, and to really right. get, uh, get, your, get your finger on the pulse of the Bigfoot activity in your area. Yeah, in, in my county here, I, I live in Ferry County. I work in Stevens County. But those two counties together, if you look on the BFRO database, maybe have 20 reports together for those two counties. Well, I know for a fact that I've had easily that many verbal reports uh, to me in the last two years. Um, and then for about three years, I worked as a forest warden for the Washington Department of Natural Resources here. And every summer, I'd get three or four people each summer kind of pulling me aside and saying, hey, uh, I need to tell you something that I saw. And they'd tell me about, you know, seeing a Sasquatch while they were, you know, uh, dirt biking out in the woods or hearing something weird walk through their camp at night. So the number of act, the, the amount of activity that's going on is far, far more than what you might think if all you were looking at was the BFRO database. Have you found any other trackways that you're able to, like, you know, backtrack a Squatch? I've tracked them a couple of times. Uh, I have found tracks here uh, up in the area where I first heard uh, uh, the, you know, what I later learned was samurai chatter. Um, I have found uh, a footprint up there. I've, I've had interesting encounters up there. Um, this last summer, I was on a BFRO expedition um, at uh, Chehalis Lake in British Columbia. And uh, we found tracks from three different individuals. We found uh, some 17-inch long tracks. I found some 13-and-a-half-inch uh, long tracks. And very close to some of the 17-inch long tracks, we found an 8-inch track. And so, um, and I was up there specifically this last summer to teach tracking to the uh, members of that expedition. I, I've taught um, tracking on uh, BFRO expeditions a number of times now over the years. Uh, this coming summer, I'm going on three expeditions, uh, one here in Northeast Washington, one in the Cascades of Washington, and one up in British Columbia. And I'll be teaching tracking classes at all three of those uh, expeditions. And so one of the things that I've learned that I've been most impressed with is that they're very, very patient. And they are not going to rush into anything. Um, when, when, you, when you find a trackway and you see how they use cover and concealment, you see how they go to great pains to keep something between them and the tent or them and the campsite that they're interested in. Um, uh, I mean, it reminds me of you know, some kind of special forces scout sneaking up on an enemy uh, installment. You know, they're they're constantly thinking about, you know, um, not exposing themselves, not uh, drawing attention to themselves, uh, using the natural cover to uh, hide behind. They're not gonna they're not gonna walk a straight line up to anything. Their their uh, approach is more circuitous. 
so they can take advantage of things to hide behind. And uh, again, I I refer to them as the ninjas of the woods. They are just, it's incredible uh, how perfectly adapted they are to staying well hidden in the woods. You're writing a book on tracking Sasquatch in particular. What hints do you have for people? Like what, what would be some things you'd want them to know? And do you have a title for your book that people can look for coming out next year? Yeah, the, the working title right now is is simply Tracking Sasquatch. And it's a book uh, uh, aimed at teaching some basic skills to people who want to go squatching, what to look for, the kind of clues and signs to look for. Right now, um, the, uh, the written portion of the book is at my publisher's they're working on on that. They're editing that and stuff. And we're working on, you know, uh, developing the uh, illustrations and getting those put in. Um, it's based on, you know, all my tracking experience as a trooper doing hundreds of search and rescue cases and on, you know, my uh, uh, squatching experiences. Um, if I were to give um, one piece of advice to people that wanted to go squatching, it would be learn tracking because most people, when they think of tracking, they think of following footsteps. They think of, you know, you're going to see these well-defined footsteps out there and, you know, you just follow them until you you know come to the individual or until something else happens and you lose them. But the fact is most of tracking is following what we call sign. It's not following footprints. If if all you're looking for is footprints, you're going to be sorely disappointed because good, clear Sasquatch footprints are very rare. But if you know what to look for, if you know uh, to look for that bruised piece of vegetation, if you know to look for that pebble that's been knocked out of place uh, or the the different colors in the dirt where something has scuffed up the dirt and exposed the wet dirt underneath the dry dirt. Um, if you know to look for the, you know, the little bits of sand or, or grains of sand that uh, were sticking to a Sasquatch foot as it stepped on a log and it transferred some of those grains of sand to that log, those are the kind of things that a tracker looks for. It's not footprints. Footprints are considered a bonus if you actually find one. It's all the small little signs that indicate something passed through here. And once you start opening your eyes to those small signs, it opens a whole new world of being able to figure out what's going on out there. Well, all right, Charles, man, I, this has been a really enlightening conversation. It's fantastic to speak to a legitimate tracker who's tracked these things on a number of occasions and get some insight there. And I just want to thank you so much for spending the time on the phone with Bobo and I. It's been my pleasure. If either of you guys are ever in Northeast Washington, I've got a guest room. It's a date. All right, man. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thanks again, Charles. All right, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye. Thanks. But man, that was great. It's just to have a guy with his bona fides come out publicly and state, yes, these things are real. It's just, I love it. 
Yeah, and it was so refreshing to listen to a legitimate tracker talking about his observations and the the small little things he looks for and what he learned from it. Because uh, people, you know, people see the plaster casts, and the public at large expects footprints to look like that in the ground, and they don't. So it's so good to talk to somebody who legitimately knows what he's talking about. And you know what else is cool about him is he had the humility to say, "I don't know anything about this subject." And hook up with you know some squatters that wouldn't have his outdoor bona fides or his tracking ability, but have the knowledge of Sasquatch behavior. And he hooked up with those guys, and they taught each other some stuff, so they were mutually beneficial. Yeah, yeah. He went to people that he he knew knew a little bit more than he did about the subject, and then he applied his own expertise. Uh, towards the subject and came to his own conclusions. And I think if people do that, if they have the right skill set, of course, they're always going to come out saying Bigfoots are real because that's the truth. Right. All right, man. Well, that was a great conversation, and I don't know what we, who we have planned for next time, so uh, I guess uh, it's going to be a surprise to me and you, huh? Uh, yep. <laughs> like everything good. else we do. A little chaotic. <laughs> All right, Clip. Well, then we got a date, hot date next weekend. Yeah, threesome. We just don't know who the third person is. Oh. <laughs> I'm getting a chick witness this time. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, well, uh, uh, everybody out there, thanks for listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, and I'll see you next time. All right, people, keep it squatchy, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 